please stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is a man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. I'm Travis. Uh, I'm the pastor here. We're going to take a little break from our series in Exodus Out of Darkness into Light this week to get to hear from uh, a friend, uh, Pastor Curtis Cook of Hope Fellowship, just up the road, also in Cambridge. Curtis has been very kind and welcoming me here, and he's been a faithful presence uh, in Cambridge for many years. So I'm grateful that we get to hear from him today. It's also a good reminder for us, if you are part of CTK, that life exists outside these church walls. Church community exists outside our congregation, and God is doing many things in many lives through many of his people. So let's warmly welcome Curtis this morning. It is a great joy to be with you all. Um, my wife Brandy and I are from a very small town in Oklahoma, a town of about 1,000 people. We moved to Boston 23 years ago, have made our home here. Uh, we have a, a daughter who's 25, uh, now married, has the center of our family life now, our, a grandson, a year and a half old, who uh, uh, unfortunately doesn't live in Boston, but is a great source of joy to us. And our, our son is uh, 22. Uh, and so we've made our home here, planted our roots here, have loved life in ministry in the city. We, like you, know some of the, the pains of ministry in the city. I thought of that as I walked in this, this morning and I saw your small parking lot. And we similarly, I think we have nine parking spaces at our church. And churches around the country have no idea what it means to have such a small uh, space of parking. And so, so some of the joys of, of ministry in the city that we share together. I am thankful for this congregation uh, and across the years have been so encouraged by your ministry in the city. Uh, enduring, faithful gospel work. Uh, and the planting of churches, sending out people and resources has been an encouragement and a challenge to us as a church as we have sought to do the same. And I've been grateful for, for Rick Down's friendship and for Travis now as well. And just know that we as a church are thankful to, to partner together with you in trying to reach our city and greater Boston with the gospel. Greater Boston seems to be known for a number of things, some perhaps fair, some perhaps unfair. A city with history on every corner, passionate sports fans, apparently a little bit of regional pride that we may have, bad aggressive drivers, according only to outsiders, it makes sense once you've become one of them, strong, sometimes arrogant opinions on any number of topics, and why shouldn't we have those opinions? And Boston is known for busy, hard-driving, fast-moving driven people. And our fast-moving, aggressive lives allow us to get a lot done, 
If you think about that, all that's accomplished in Greater Boston, in Cambridge, across the years, it really is truly remarkable. So much good is done through those fast-paced lives. But they also can consume our hearts and our souls and our bodies. Many of you, in spite of time change, come in this morning exhausted, perhaps physically exhausted, but even more just overwhelmed by the weight of the pace of life and work that we have here in Boston. I wonder if you're feeling that today or if you felt it recently, worn out by study, work, keeping up with things. And so we wonder, is it worth it? Are we investing our lives wisely and well? Is there a way to, to give ourselves to much good in the world, to much hard work and have it matter and not be consumed by it? Is there a way to work hard, but in a way that truly matters? Unfortunately, God gives us help for that in the psalm that we've read this morning, Psalm 127. We see, I hope, this emphasis this morning in Psalm 127, and that is this. Cultivate reliance on the Lord who builds fruitful lives. Cultivate reliance on the Lord who builds fruitful lives. And we'll look at our passage in these two parts. So first we'll see, unless the Lord, vanity. And then second, from the Lord, fruitfulness. So unless the Lord, vanity. From the Lord, fruitfulness. So first, unless the Lord, vanity, in verses 1 and 2. Now, we're told in the superscript that this was written by Solomon, the son of King David, who reigned following his father. Solomon built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit in the writing of this psalm, it's a psalm, originally a song sung by God's people for their own personal use of praising God, but as well also together, a corporate song, that's all the psalms were, for God's people. As we explore the meaning of this psalm, we see it on multiple levels. Where Solomon himself had this unique role of building the temple of the Lord. The temple was seen in ways as the house of God. God had chosen his design to uniquely dwell among his people in the temple. Not that that was the only place that he would dwell, but he had committed to uniquely dwell among his covenant people. So Solomon had this role of building this temple. He had the role of seeking to coordinate the protection of a land, of a nation, and also of the city of Jerusalem. This psalm certainly speaks to those unique circumstances, but it's intended to be a psalm not only for Solomon, but for all of Israel in that day and for all of God's people today. Therefore, it's for us today as well. For we face the same temptations they faced then. No matter how much things have changed, we still face these same struggles. And this idea of building a house is included, building a literal house, of course, but also building a life, building a family. The psalmist writes of the protection of the city in ancient Israel. Most cities would have walls around them to protect them from these attackers who would come from the outside. And so, so often the thought was, are we safe here? It's certainly easy for them to be overly focused on self-protection. Always anxious, are we safe? 
And then Solomon, the Israelites, and we face a danger, seeking to do this in a way other than relying on the Lord. We see this repeated in verse 1 and 2. Look down at verse 1 and 2. He says, unless the Lord builds it, unless the Lord watches, the building's in vain. The watching is in vain. So, so it's in vain. It's ultimately empty, unsatisfying, ineffective. So if Solomon were to try to build the temple and protect Jerusalem while not relying on God, it would all be in vain. If we try to build our physical homes, we try to build a life, a career on any resource other than God, it too will eventually be shown to be in vain, empty, insufficient. The same would go for the security of the city then, same goes for the security of our lives. We want to be secure, both now and into the future. We want to be safe. But if it's grounded in any other resource other than God, it will be in vain. So the self-reliant life, we could say, is in vain. The very best that you can produce or I can produce on my own ultimately will be shown to be in vain. So, of course, we could apply this to your education or to your career. But if it's only grounded in yourself, in the best that you can produce, Eventually, perhaps not immediately, but eventually, it'll be shown to be in vain, empty. I wonder if you've ever found yourself struggling with self-reliance, acting as if it all depends on you and acting as if if you do enough, it will be enough. This has been a decades-long struggle for me, for I've consistently struggled with a, a willingness to to turn my reliance on the Lord. I know most people think pastors work one day a week, which is, you know, but we do work a little bit more than that. And so one of the challenges for me from the earliest days of our church was being committed to take a day off. So for me, the rhythm has typically been on a Monday, right? Complete the week and then take Monday off. And yet it has been a struggle for decades and, and it will be a struggle tomorrow. Because inside, there's this sense that there's things that need to be done for the life of the church, the ministry of people. There are people in need. And those things are true, underneath it actually is, for me, an ongoing struggle and unwillingness to trust that God could hold things together if I actually took a day off. That the church would actually still be there if I wasn't there for 24 hours. And I wonder where you are tempted to rely on yourself rather than relying on God. And we see the result of this self-reliant living in verse 2. It leads to this vicious cycle, rising early and staying up late. We rise early because work must be done. We believe it all depends on us. We work all day, and then we stay up late because we must come through. It has to be done, and then we're left when we do sleep with unsatisfying sleep that doesn't refresh and even sleepless nights. So we're either working or worrying about work or worrying that we aren't working enough, and when we work, we're not satisfied, and then we can never find rest. I wonder if you found yourself there in the last month. The frustration of laying in bed, your mind racing with worry, the exhaustion of anxious, sleepless nights. You did go to sleep, but then the next morning you're just as tired as you were when you went to bed. 
And we're cautioned that we shouldn't be satisfied to eat the bread of anxious toil. Apparently, we have a choice as to whether we will work and eat anxiously and nervously. We see that we do receive some bread, but it can't truly satisfy. And unfortunately, that's the dangerous part, that the bread may convince us that we're actually making real progress. That's why self-reliant work is so dangerous, because it can make progress for a time. The fruit of long hours and worry may appear to be substantial for a while. So we, we worry and work hard. We make apparent progress. It looks like we're getting ahead. And friends, self-reliance is doubly dangerous and tempting in our culture, in our city, because it looks so respectable. But if you live a self-reliant life, you will accumulate accomplishments. You, you can fill the wall with degrees and diplomas. You can climb the ladder of success. If you live a self-reliant, you will get lots of affirmation. If you rise early and stay up late in self-reliant work, you will likely get applauded in Greater Boston. It will never get you fired. Your supervisor will not bring you in and say, we're going to have to let you go. You're just working too much. We just can't have too many people working too many hours here. We really need to scale things back. Well, of course not. They're going to say, he or she worked so much, let's promote them. Give them more work because no matter how much we give them, they will always get it done. It will not initially lessen your success as a student, but it may get you ahead. It may move you to the top of the class. It may gain you entrance to the next school that you want to get into. And friends, almost no one in our city or on your campus will caution you against this. If we live thoroughly self-reliant lives, we'll fit in very well in Greater Boston and in Cambridge. Now, this does raise an important question. Is God against hard work? Is he against diligent, long hours to, to build a life, to build a city, secure a life? And the answer is no, he's not against that. God created work. We see that God gave work to Adam before the fall. So work is from God. It's a good thing. But as a result of the fall, work has been transformed. Work can often be toil. But friends, make no mistake, it is good and glorifying to God for God's people to work and even to work very hard at times. And good can be done through your hard work and your diligence. And there are times in life when one may need to, for a season, rise extra early and stay up extra late. That is certainly true. So God doesn't say, don't get up early for work. So, so don't mishear me and, and miss work tomorrow because the other guy said, just don't get up early for it. That, that's not what it's saying. He also doesn't say, don't stay up late to work. But he does give us this significant principle. Don't rise up early or stay up late out of Nervousness, fear, anxiety, out of self-reliance. So our text holds out a caution of the danger of self-reliant work, but it also holds out the potential for a transformed way of living. So we should see the potential of work and rest that relies on God. So the psalm is both a, a daunting caution, but also a hopeful promise. There's good news for the beloved that he refers to in verse 2. The one who is loved by God. 
Of course, the important question then, but then who are the beloved of God? Well, on one level, this may be an allusion to Solomon himself, whose name means beloved. But of course, Solomon was not the only one loved by God. Beloved means those who are loved by God. And friends, this is an identity. This is not what we do. It's not what we earn. But it is who we are. Now, how did God bring us in, bring some of us in to be his beloved? It is through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, the King. We see this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So if you're a Christian, this is who you are, a child of God, one of the beloved of God. And the good news is this love is based not on what we have done or not what we will do, but on the finished, perfect work of Christ. So therefore, it becomes our eternal identity. It's not something we can lose. You're not loved by God on a good day and not loved the next day when it's a bad day. But friends, you can rest secure in this unfailing love of God. Friend, as a Christian, have you forgotten that? Have you allowed some other identity to supersede that? Instead of resting in the fact, this is who you are, beloved of God. This is life-changing news. And friend, if you're not a Christian, it's a wonderful thing. You'd give part of your Sunday morning to gather here. And scriptures tell us that all of us, as we already mentioned today, are separated from God by our own rebellion, our own rejection of God. But it tells us there is this gloriously loving God who created us and who's made a way through the coming of Jesus Christ the Son where sinners and rebels like us can be transformed, adopted into God's own family, forgiven of all our sins, brought into life eternal that begins now. All of this is a free gift. It cannot be earned. It must not be earned. It can only be received by faith. And this... God who made us desires to transform our eternity, that's true, but also to transform our work and our study, to give significance and meaning to what we do. That's friend, I wonder, have you too found yourself exhausted by the grind of life with no ultimate satisfaction? And friends, for those who are Christians, as the beloved of God, that can change the way that we live. Because if you're like me, so often what we drive towards in our self-reliance is we're, we're looking for the applause, the approval of others. But I wonder whose approval is it you so desire that drives you to push towards the promotion, that drives you to accumulate more, drives you to, drives you to climb the ladder higher, and have you found, like me, that though we desire that applause, it either never comes, or even when it does come, it's not enough for us. And so we push for more of it. But friend, you see that through Christ, we have the ultimate, complete, unshakable approval of the God of the universe. So therefore, we can rest secure in that that our God is with us, that we'll be welcomed home with well done at the end. And that is an assurance that can potentially free us from self-reliance. 
Notice we see that, the, that God gives to his beloved, verse 2. And friends, this is the very nature of our God, to give, to generously give and give and give. Friends, that's what our God does. And so what does he give in our text? You might think, okay, what is it he's going to give to us in the face of this? It's actually something quite interesting. Verse 2, for he gives to his beloved sleep. He gives sleep, he gives rest, he gives refreshment. So, so one of the things, not the only thing, but one of the things that he gives to his children is sleep, restful sleep, restoring sleep. And so in light of that, what are we to do? Humbly receive this gift. To see this gift as a, a good and right gift God has given to us. God intentionally created humans with bodies that require sleep. I suppose if he wanted to, he could have made us with bodies that didn't need sleep. But friend, do you see, it's, it's his good design that, that we do become exhausted, that we do have to sleep to continue to live. And do you see that this exhaustion is a gift because it drives us to humility? Because at, at a moment in the day, we say, there's nothing else I can do. All I can do is sleep. It humbles the proud. So do you see how, how sleep can be a means of cultivating humility, fighting pride? Now, I understand that some people and some of you in this room, I'm, I'm certain, have a very hard time getting sleep. My, my wife is like that. Sleep has been a struggle for her for years. I have a hard time understanding because it's not for me, which is, I can fall asleep in literally like seconds, which I don't think helps her, you know, uh, feeling good in her struggles with that. So I know some of you really struggle with sleep and it's very difficult. So, so don't hear this as some condemnation or as if God doesn't love you because you have a hard time sleeping. So it's not saying that at all times and in all ways, everyone receives restful sleep. It's a part of life in this fallen world with fallen bodies that we have that's for some of us, sleep is very difficult. So don't let this add guilt upon you. But it is always worth considering for any of us is part of the reason that I'm not sleeping because I'm anxious or because I'm self-reliant. Because I typically sleep so easily and so quickly, when I don't sleep, it's devastating. And almost every time I find myself sleepless for significant periods of time at night, it is because of anxiousness, worry within. I just lay there and it turns and it turns and it turns. It's devastating to both my heart and mind, and wills to the next day as well. So friends, God graciously gives to us sleep. But the good news is, while God made us for sleep, He never sleeps. Your God neither slumbers nor sleeps. Friends, that's such good news, that while we sleep, He works. And He, the God of the universe, can do more while we sleep than we could do in our entire lifetime. So while we rest, we turn our trust to Him and say, God, would you work while I sleep? The wheat farmer works very hard. They rise early, they stay up late. But the farmer is utterly, eventually dependent on God. For he can do much to prepare the field to sow the seed, but then he has to, to pray that God would bring the rain. 
The, the farmer cannot go out into the wheat field at night and try to grab the little wheat stalks and maybe he can stretch them and make them grow. No, he can't do it. It would be nonsense. So yes, he does work hard, but eventually he says, I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going to pray. God, would you bring rain and would you cause the growth and God will do more through that brief rain than the farmer could ever do on his own. But that's good news for us when we lay down to sleep. We would consider, friends, that the, the hope on the other side of these cautions it says, unless the Lord builds it, it's in vain, but therefore the other side is true if the Lord builds it it's not in vain. If the Lord is at work in you, in your works, it's, it's not vanity. Unless the Lord watches. But, but if the Lord is watching, if the Lord is guarding, then the watchman doesn't stay awake in vain. So friend, there is a way that as we work with the strength that God gives us, he works through our work. The Lord builds. He empowers your labors. He gives rest from our work and he works while we rest. So what would it look like for us to embrace and grow in this transformed view of living? Well, I would encourage you to pray this week that God would enable you to feel the weight of this caution. Truly believe this is true. Second, where appropriate today, repent of self-reliant living. You, you may know exactly where this is for you today. And so to come clean and acknowledge it to God. Pray that God would help you to discern your own heart and maybe ask, why is it I stay up late and rise early? What is it that I'm seeking? Whose approval am I longing for? Pray that God would enable you to rely on him in all areas of life. I suspect if you serve in the children's ministry here, as, as I hope that you do, you should serve in the nursery starting very soon. Or if you lead a small group, very likely you pray for those things. God, help me in that. And yet so often we, we segment off that from the real life that we live. How often you pray, God, would you help me at work today? Would you help me in my studies this evening? Would you grant me grace as a husband, as a wife, as a parent? My friend, also, what would it look like to intentionally, regularly choose to cease from work? Within the rhythm of your day, when is it you should just tell yourself, I'm going to put, I'm going to close up my laptop and put it away. I'm going to put my phone away. There's no more work to be done at this point in the day. And how wise would that be, honestly, for your heart? It's probably also worth considering who will help you in this? Who would you share this struggle with? And say, I just want you to know, here's an area I've been struggling. And so would you have the freedom? In fact, I'm asking you, would you ask me a month from now how I'm doing in this area? I think we'd all probably be helped by a question like that. And friend, also consider how if you even began to make progress in living this way, how you could be a light of Christ on your campus or in the workplace. For in a city where everyone is frazzled, everyone is stressed out, everyone is anxious, what if you were there in the workplace, yes, working hard, working diligently, getting your work done, and yet there was a, a strange, not perfection, but a strange peace in you? 
Or on the campus when everyone else is complaining about the professor, everyone else is overwhelmed. You're, you're working hard. You're tired too, but you're not completely overwhelmed. Friend, how might that be a light say, what is it about him, about her? But it's not that you're so powerful, but it's Christ in you. And first, perhaps the last thing on this that you might consider today would be receive rest, receive sleep from God today. So here's my takeaway. Go home today, and if at all possible, take a nap. I'm going to try to apply this this afternoon. It's a skill I've developed well over the years. I'm a very proficient napper. So go home and say, the pastor said, I need to take a nap. My friends, it is humbling, right, to say, there are things I need to do. But there's always things to do. But instead, humbly say, I also need rest. So we see, unless the Lord, vanity. But then second and more briefly, we see from the Lord, fruitfulness in verses 3 through 5. The psalmist tells us that children are a heritage. By reward here, this is not saying that children are earned. It's not saying that if you're good enough, you will earn children. And it's certainly not saying that if you don't have children, that there's something awry within you. That's not what this text is saying. But it is saying that for those who have children, you must see them as a gift. All children are a gift from God. Parents, do you see your children as a gift from God, an undeserved gift that God has entrusted to you? Or do you more often think them as something that takes from you? I make no mistake, parenting is exhausting, especially when there's a time change and their time didn't change for you. But friends, children are a beautiful gift from God. As local churches, children are also a gift given to us. Children also, we see in verse 4 and 5, are strategic like arrows. Look down at verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So God intends for children to be like a well-honed weapon, like an arrow in the hand of an expert warrior. The psalmist says children are like that. They can be invested in, equipped, prepared, and then sent out into the world for significant good. And friends, what is the good that we might send our children out into the world to do? There are numerous things, but most of all, to glorify God in what they do. To be devoted followers of Christ who will join in his great global mission wherever he takes them. Parents, that's the hope for your kids, that they would love and follow Jesus into his mission in the world even more than get into this university or that one, which is a strange thought in Cambridge, I understand. But we so easily follow in that as well. So parents, God has entrusted these children to you. They're, they're a gift that you must steward well. In order for them to be sent out into the world, it takes time and effort, intentionality, sacrifice on your part to invest in and prepare them for the life that's before them. Children will not, of course, naturally grow into being a well-directed thing on their own. It takes investment from parents, from the family, from the church, so we must be wise and intentional. We must be strategic and persevering. So parents, we must give thought and effort to help train up our children in the ways of the Lord. If we don't intentionally think and plan for it, it will not just naturally happen. Life is busy. Other things will grab our time and attention. So 
parents, engage with your children and let them see you engaged in the faith. Not the only thing, but one of the most valuable things you can do, parents, is to let your kids see you love Jesus and love the church. Not in perfection, but they just see that mom and dad love Jesus, they love the church, they love to sing, and that will imprint upon them week by week by week. I know life is busy, but the reality is it will not get any better. So parents, what what shapes the calendar of your family? When when the children are young, it's tempting to shape the calendar by the sleep schedule of our kids. I understand that. Sleep is good. Friends, let me encourage you. I, I feel like I'm meddling, but I'm an outsider. I've shared these same things with our, with our church, but, but parents, we, we teach our kids at a young age that the life, our, our, our life is about them or it's about the church. We want to see that our kids say that, yeah, we just, are, we just go along our family. We're engaged in life of the church. We're, we're with God's people. So, so when our kids are young, it's their sleep schedule. But what's real, when they're older, it's their activity schedule. And it's hard as a parent, I know I've been there, to try to discern how do we balance all of these things. So be careful. We're not teaching our children something we don't intend to teach them. Are we sufficient for this task? No. But friend, God will give us the grace that we need. The psalmist goes on to say, verse 5, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Now I assume like our congregation, there are many in this congregation who desire to have children and have not been able to. And you feel the very real pain and disappointment of that not happening. For you know that, that we, and I'm sure this church, mourns with you for that very real, often devastating burden. We also want to see with this, though, that having children, when possible, is a good thing. In the midst of Cambridge, as you know, few in our society think having children is a good thing. But, it, but it's so easy for, for couples who have the ability to have children just put it off and put it off and put it off. Just to encourage you. Children are a good gift from God. Treasure the children that God would give to you. But as we think about this, we also want to keep in mind that in the coming of Jesus Christ, he has changed our outlook on the family extending the scope of the family. In Matthew chapter 12, we see a time when Jesus was teaching and his mother Mary and his brothers come to him and people say, hey, they've come to to get you and Jesus says this, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and brother and sister. So Jesus says something really pivotal here. The truly the truest family is the family of God in Jesus Christ, in the church. So yes, our families are very real in this world, but that is also this family, the family of those who know Jesus. So we're all now in Christ to live as a part of this new family in the church. And so therefore, we're to be engaged in raising up children in the church. Now by that, that certainly means children chronologically, but not only that. Raising up newer believers of all different ages and helping to mature them. But that's the investment we make in the family of the church. 
all are to be investing in other believers so that these other believers, young and old, will all be sent out as well-honed arrows into our world. And so we do this in, in numerous ways, right, of, of spontaneously meeting with and encouraging a newer believer or another Christian, and, and defined discipling relationships, in small groups, in classes, all of these ways. Saying to this person, I don't have it all figured out. I've only been a Christian a little bit longer than you, but, but I'll give you what I have. I'll help you a little further down the road. So, friend, if you have children, yes, you must invest in them. But parents also hear that for the next 20 years of life, you're not to only invest in your children. That there are others in the church that you should invest in as well. And it'll be good for your kids to see you invest in others beside them. And for all of us in the church here, for all of you here, we're together in this mission that this is the family of God. We're going to make disciples and send them to the nations. As I think about our two children, so 25 and 22, they both moved away in sin. They moved away from their parents. No, I'm just kidding. It's not really. They moved away, but, but for both of them, they had to find another local church. Right, and as parents with older kids, it's a daunting thing. Will your kids even go to church? Will they follow Jesus? And believe me, I, I'm really hesitant to say anything about parenting until our kids are like 40. So I only say this really cautiously. But so far, by God's grace, they both have eagerly found a local church and started to serve in the local church. But I've told our church, it's not a compliment to us. What it's a compliment to is to our church. Not to their perfect parents, because we're far from perfect, but to a church that loved our kids. Young adults like many of you who were much cooler than their parents and who showed them what it meant to follow Jesus and invested them in children's classes and in nursery in all these different ways. It was the church, it has been the church that shaped our kids' love for the church, not their parents. And friends, that's what you have the chance to do in this church for every child and for every adult who's a Christian. So this family of this church is called to invest well and send out arrows of young and maturing believers. Now one of the realities of life in Cambridge, as you know very well, is that lots of people come and go. People move in and people move out. Students come and students go. There are many things that are very hard about that, but one of the positive byproducts is, by the very nature of this city, this church will send out arrows to the world. New believers, maturing believers who spent a season at CTK who will join the mission of Jesus uh, in New York City, in California, in the nations. And you are a part of that. That's why you're here. That's why Hope Fellowship is here. But if you've been here a while, you also know that's very painful to do. To know people, to love people, to invest in them, have them invest in you, and then say these painful goodbyes. And if you've been here a while, my guess is you're like me. There is a fatigue that comes from saying goodbye to people. And it's tempting, I feel this every year, to finally say, I'm just not going to open myself up to more people. I mean, if you've been here long enough, you know if they say, I'm in this program at this school, you immediately know how long they'll be here. I do. 
So I'm tempted, there's certain programs I meet, and I know it's a one-year program, and, and I shake their hands, and they say, I'm at that program. My natural default is to think, I don't, I don't say it, but to think, you're welcome to come to Hope Fellowship Church, but you're going to be gone in a year, and so I'm just really not going to open myself up, up, up to you because I don't have to say goodbye to you. That's the natural thought that I have. And my guess is that many of you feel that. For long-term members at Hope, it is painful it's a temptation sometimes to say, look, no more new people. Unless you can verify to us a 10-year commitment, you cannot join our church. Friends, that would be safer. That would be less painful if we did that. But also be forsaking the very mission of the church. Friends, it's better to love people and to have a tear-soaked goodbye than to protect ourselves close ranks and never have to say a tear-filled goodbye. So let me just encourage you as a church. Maybe this is not a struggle here, but it is for me, it is for our church. It's hard to keep saying goodbye. But friends, just think how many hundreds and hundreds of arrows have already been sent out of CTK across its existence. And by God's grace, in the decades to come, how many hundreds and hundreds more will be sent out? Some will stay, that's true. More of you probably should stay. You should do that. But even as they go, friends, that's a good part of the mission of Jesus. It's worth it. It's right. It's godly. Oh, it is painful. That is true. But it is a good and right pain. So, friend, are you a part of that here at CTK? Will you give yourself to this, the making of disciples, investing in the kingdom, sending out arrows to the world? Let's pray and labor that we would spend our lives wisely. May we who've been made the beloved in Christ cultivate reliance on the Lord who builds, that He would build fruitful lives in us. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for this congregation, for their witness in this city, their sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, their generosity in, in sending out workers and sending out missionaries and sending out planters and sending out members to those plants. What an astounding number of arrows have been sent into the mission through this church. I pray you would encourage them in that to see it's good and right. It's a worthwhile investment. Help them to push through the, the fatigue and the pain that I feel as well. Lord, for all of us, as we face Monday coming, self-reliance that so easily wells up, helps us to see how we have the opportunity to, to be a light in our city, on the campus, in our workplace. Not as we do this perfectly, but as we simply make progress. Spirit, would you cause that to be true in our lives, in this church? In Jesus' name, amen.